Good morning, everyone. It's, so, it's funny, when you get up and you look and you see like, all right, everyone's sitting over here this week and this side, you know, and Betsy's all by herself. It's just sad, but uh, no, but uh, just funny to see the dynamics there. But how many of you got woke up this morning, woke, woken up, awakened, awakened. Uh, by, by a, you know, the storm? Yeah, I, don't, I remember, yeah, it's like one boom, uh, it was five or six o'clock and uh, yeah, I love a good thunderstorm in the morning. Not a destructive storm, but I love a good, I don't know, I mean, there's something relaxing about that, but anyway. Hey, if you have your Bibles, want to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, um, whether you use a Bible, your app, um, we're going to be, be uh, getting there here in just a moment. <clears throat> so if I, um, it, I'm curious to you know if you are, have ever heard of a man named William Miller, or M- Millerites. Sound familiar? Nobody. Okay. So we're going to start school early, some of you. Um, a little history lesson here. Um, so let me read. I'm going to read you this account. Um, and it actually plays, this is a setup for kind of where we're going in the passage of Scripture today. But I think you'll find it interesting. I found it fascinating. So William Miller was a devout believer and careful student of the Bible. In 1818, that's probably why you don't know him, um, in 1818, 100, would that be 176 years ago, 178 years ago, um, he calculated a date for the end of the world by using a strict, literal reading of the first chapters of Genesis and other prophetic events in the Bible. He aligned these events with the prophetic numbering systems in the books of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelations. He became convinced that he could use this system to determine the exact period of time between the birth of Jesus, the fall of Jerusalem, and the return of the Messiah. Jesus, Miller predicted, would make his millennial return and the world would end on October 22nd, 1844. 26 years from when he first started this process, or from when he actually calculated it. So after publishing a book about his theory in 1831, so 13 years later, he published a book, he set off on a speaking tour of the northeast parts of of the United States. By 1840, Miller had gathered a sizable following between 50 and 100,000 people. Most of these Millerites, which is where it comes from, the term, uh, lived in central and eastern Massachusetts, so it was a New England kind of a thing primarily. Their religious meetings had all the emotional passion of early tent revivals. So we're still nine years before the big day is supposed to come. So as the year of the expected apocalypse neared, believers in the prophecy began to give away their belongings, abandon their crops, and sell their land. In the town of Harvard, one man sold his cows at a great sacrifice because there would be no one to care for them when he was gone up. Women in the Worcester area cut off their hair, removed the ruffles from their dresses, and threw or gave away their jewelry. And in some cases, everything they owned. Others broke up all their furniture, declaring that they would no longer have use for tables or chairs or beds. Wanting to be suitably attired for heaven, Millerites made long white garments for themselves that they called their ascension robes. In the spring of 1844, a prophetic sign appeared. 
Miller's prediction that the end of the world was near gained new weight and new followers when a comet was seen moving across the Massachusetts sky at noontime. On October 22nd, it's a big day, the believers donned their robes. Believing that Christ would return on a mountaintop, they climbed up Mount Wachuset to await the coming of the Lord. One man who could not make it up the mountain stationed himself at the very top of the tallest apple tree in his orchard and waited out the night. In New Bedford, a whole family perched on the branches of an apple tree dressed in their white robes. The vast majority of Millerites were devastated and some impoverished by the failure of the prophecy. A remnant continued to believe after reinterpreting the meaning of the, proper, the prophecy. So, today, more than 200 years later, 202 years to be exact, how do we think about groups like this? Crazy? Crazy? Okay. I, I mean, if you study the Bible so well, doesn't it say in Revelation that not even the angels know? Okay, yeah, and we're going to, exactly right, and we're going we're gonna to talk about that because that's where the passage, but... Yeah, they had it all figured out. And so, I mean, as I was thinking about this, and I finished reading the article, I mean, some of them were like, man, these people are just foolish. I mean, they sold everything. And, 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 or, but, but then actually it came to the point where I actually felt more pity. I felt bad for them. Because here's the thing. These were not bad people. And outside of this one thing, these were really good, decent, God-fearing, Jesus-loving people. They weren't trying to be where they weren't trying to. They just held this one thing very tightly and took it literally and believed it to be, that, uh, to be true. Um, here's the thing to remember, though. The Millerites were not the first, nor were they the last group to try to predict when Jesus was coming back. Um, in fact, Jehovah's Witnesses, some of you have, may have had some familiarity with that in your past or have neighbors or have talked to people who've shown up on your doorstep uh, to talk about their faith. But they, the, the return of Jesus is a central part of, of their faith tradition. And they predicted uh, early on that 1878 was going to be the year. And then that passed, so then 1881. And then he recalculated and just said, oh, wait, we were wrong. It's now 1914. And then it was 1918. And then it was 1925. And then they waited a while, then it was 1975, and now they've stopped predicting um, because they realize it's just no good news. Because to your point, I mean, as we're told, that's not, we're not to know. So who was the first group to speculate on the return of the second coming of Jesus? Any guesses? The apostles. And they did it when Jesus was still alive. I mean, so he hadn't even left yet. And they were like, I mean, it's really funny that in Acts 1, so he, he, had, he was crucified, he died, he was resurrected, and we know that there was for a 40-day period that he walked with his disciples before he went back up into heaven. In Acts chapter 1, they said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, you're coming, is this the second coming? Is this it? Is this is what you're talking about? And this is, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. When Jesus replied, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. I just think that's very interesting. The very last conversation Jesus had on earth, the very last thing he talked about was the fact, hey, don't try to figure this out. No one knows. 
In fact, another verse, he says, I don't know. The angels don't. Only the Father knows when that time will be. Now, honestly, though, Jesus has only himself to blame in some ways. Um, And the reason is because he talked about his second coming on numerous occasions. I mean, so this was not some mystery. I mean, he talked about this openly. I mean, Mark chapter 13, he talked extensively about the end time what this is going to look like and what it would be like. And he concludes with this statement. He says, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. But then he says, Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. So he's telling them, Hey, pay attention. Be on guard, be alert. In Luke 12, so I don't know if it's contagious or something here, but it's a front row thing. Uh, Luke 12, he says, I'm coming back but even I do not know when it will be. But he did say this, there will be signs. Matthew 24, he talks about this. In Luke 21, he talks about this. He says there will be wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes in various places. So he says these are all symptoms, these are all signs that I'm coming again. And he says that when you see these things happen, so pay attention, be ready. This is when it is. And so in Luke 21, He says, at that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So Jesus himself kind of created that sense of expectancy and wonderment and and, 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 and a sense of anticipation. And he did give some clues. He said, here's what's going to be going on. And so every time, you know, there's, you know, volcanoes and hurricanes and all these things. Now we've got plagues with COVID. and, And well, certainly this is it. We're in the end times. And I mean, there have been individuals who have made their livelihood trying to predict, and and this is when it's going to be. I mean, I don't know anybody recently, but I know there's a couple of guys on TV for years, decades, reinterpreting scripture with current events and said, well, see this here? This is here. You know, for the while, you know, who's going to be the Antichrist? And so there's all kinds of things that get wrapped up in here. And um, yeah, so a lot of of people spent a lot of time trying to wonder what's going on. in the 2,000 years since Jesus left. And then Paul goes and throws another wrinkle into the whole equation. He adds another whole dimension to this. Now, for those of you who haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, we're working our way for, through 1 Thessalonians. It's a small book, New Testament. Um, it's, uh, it, Paul uh, is, at this time, is on his second journey. You know, he took two journeys to spread the gospel, share his faith, uh, first time, he was primarily in the, what is in the present-day Turkey. The second time, he ends up over in Greece. <clears throat> we know that um, he was in Philippi there for a while, um, but then people opposed him, and they didn't like um, what he was preaching, and so he was forced out of there. Um, literally, by the threat of force, he left there, went to Thessalonica, and then some opposition rose there. So Paul is like three or four cities down the road, if you will. He ends up in Corinth. But he's really concerned about the people, the Christ followers who are still back up in Thessalonica. <clears throat> it would be as if Paul had come here and talked to us here in Statesville, but then there was a political opposition or the threat of violence, so Paul then went to um, Winston-Salem. And the same thing happened there after a while. From Winston-Salem, he went to Greensboro. And then he went to Durham, and now he's in Raleigh, okay? But he's concerned, so he sends someone back all the way to Statesville and says, hey, check on the people. How are they doing? And then so he sends Timothy back. And Timothy was there. We don't know if it's a few weeks, a few months. But it ultimately ends up coming back to Paul, meets with Paul in Corinth, and he gives them a really good report. It says really good things are happening. Um, and so in response to this, 
Paul, in relief, writes this letter that we now have in our hands 2,000 years later that he wrote to the people in Thessalonica. And we've called it First the Thessalonians because we also have another letter that was written to the Thessalonians, which we've called the Second Thessalonians. So we're real creative in how we assign names for these things. But um, <clears throat> the first three chapters of this letter are incredibly encouraging. Just how much he loves the people is just so evident. And he's, he's just, just complimentary and, and, and just really, really positive and thing. And then when he gets to chapter four, he starts writing about specific things. My sense is, is that when Timothy came back, he says, hey, things are going great. You know, but here's, the, they had this question. Or here's something I observed, that they're having a problem in this area. There's, so there's a few, overall things were really well, but there's a few things that were creating um, controversy or questions, and so Paul started addressing those in his letter. And then last week, in the first part of chapter 4, um, we found that, that Paul addresses the whole thing of sexual immorality. Um, just that the lifestyle there was very similar to what we have today. No limits. Everything goes. Um, and we learned there that Paul was encouraging me, listen, your body is the temple of God, and your body should be used for holy purposes, not for selfish purposes. And just was really encouraging people that way. Today, when you get to the second half of chapter 4, um, it becomes clear that Timothy also told Paul that there was something else going on there as well within the group, and that there was confusion about the eventual return of Jesus. And so Paul addresses that. So if you, again, have your Bible or have your Bible app, or we can follow along in the screen, we're going to be starting with verse 13. <clears throat> Of uh, chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, Paul begins, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And so very grateful for Paul and for his um, love and for his compassion and uh, just care for the people in, in Thessalonica. And in writing his thoughts down, we now have access to them 2,000 years later. And Father, I pray that in the next few moments that you would help me um, to communicate clearly, to communicate your heart, and to communicate the hope that Paul is so, um, um, Lord, uh, anxiously trying to communicate to his people. Uh, we just pray, Lord, for the, the next few minutes that your Holy Spirit would speak to each of us what we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, this is what we just read. This is not your normal Bible passage. In the, in the sense of a story thing. I mean, honestly, if, if you're looking at it from the outside, it kind of borders on science fiction, doesn't it? I mean, this would be a really good episode for Stranger Things. I don't know if you've been following that, uh, that show. But let's just unwrap it a little bit, see if we can understand a little bit more about what Paul is trying to communicate. I think there's four primary points within this, this passage, within his account, that I think he's trying to make. 
The first one is that Jesus will return to receive the redeemed, both living and dead. Now, what Paul has introduced here is this idea of uh, what we now refer to as the rapture. Now, it's connected to, but it's different from the second coming of Jesus. The two are two separate things, but they do happen together or within the same relative time period. Jesus came the first time to establish the way of salvation through giving of his life. His second appearance will be to receive those who have accepted him as Savior. And surprisingly, the rapture, as described by Paul in the five verses, occurs only here. In the entire Bible, it only occurs here that he talks about it like this. Now, he does imply something similar when you get into um, 1 Corinthians 15, another letter to a very different group of people, but he does say this. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So again, it's a little different wording, but it's still referring to the same thing, this idea of the rapture. Nowhere in the, else in the Bible is the rapture discussed like this. Not within these terms, not within this context. Now, however, Jesus did suggest something similar in one of his talks, one of his conversations. In John 14, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. We know that led to a whole broader conversation with Peter at the time. But again, Jesus talked about this idea of us leaving earth to go to be with him in heaven. And Jesus will return for those who follow him. So that's clearly one of the things that's being discussed here within this passage, and we see it a couple other places in Scripture. The second point I think Paul's trying to make in these verses is that the believers who have died will be resurrected. Um, Now, at the risk of uh, upsetting some, I'm going to disagree with the outline on this point. Um, um, So please don't be mad at me or think I'm a heretic or or throw things at me. In your outline, it says, when Jesus returns, he will raise the body of the deceased and will unite body and soul into one being to share his glory forever. Um, I don't think it's going to be a raising of physical bodies. Um, I I just, even though those are the words that Paul uses here, I just don't think that's, I don't think that meant to be literal in that way. For me, it raises so many questions. Um, So many other issues, like those who've been dead for a thousand years, there's, there's not, yeah, there's not even dust. Yeah, there's nothing there. Where, how does that happen? Or what about those who've been cremated? I mean, and, and especially those that say, I wanted my ashes spread from a plane, you know, and, or the, in the ocean, you know, just, I mean, there, you know what I'm saying? I realize I'm kind of um, being a little nitpicky here, but, and I, and I realize some might try to make the case that, well, God can do anything. Nothing's beyond God and God's possible. And it's true. And I don't, and I'm, I'm not going to argue with that point at all, but I think there's a simpler explanation. So rather than, than, than argue that point, I think that um, 
another explanation that exists, but I think to find it, we do have to go to another letter of Paul's to a different group of people, and it's the first Corinthians 15 passage that I referenced here just a minute ago. Paul goes to great lengths, an entire chapter, he explains this and talks about this. And to paraphrase what the, he says in a lot of words here, he says that earthly bodies cannot enter heaven. Only spiritual bodies can enter heaven. And so essentially what he's saying is that your earthly body is dead, but we will receive a new heavenly spiritual body when that time comes. So what is Paul then saying here in 1 Thessalonians? How are we to understand this? I think that we have a clue in verse 17 when he uses the term, uses the phrase, the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ. Here's what I think. I, here's what I think Timothy came back to Paul. And he said, Paul, I think the Christ followers there, they're concerned about those who have been part of their fellowship who are now dead. They were, you know, they were Christ followers, they were believers, and they're now dead. That when Jesus comes back, they're going to get left behind. They're going to get left out. What about them? And I think Paul was speaking to this, no, 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 you don't need to worry about that. Paul was comforting them and assuring them that their loved ones would be included. They would also see eternity. They would also spend eternity in heaven. They would not be left behind. They would not be left out. That's my thought as what this means, that the believers who have died will be resurrected, is that they too will be in heaven. They too will have a spiritual body. They're not going to miss out on anything. You can, be, you can, you can rest assured. But I, but I can understand that happening in that day and age where people didn't have... Paul's letters like we have. They didn't have the, the knowledge. Well, wait a minute. What happens? And so these questions are very natural questions. And I think, though, that this is what, to me, this is what makes better sense than anything else that Paul's talking about the spiritual body that, they will, that everyone will receive at that time. <clears throat> so it's the second point. The third point I think Paul's trying to make is that believers who are alive at Jesus' return will be raptured. Now, this is where the Millerites this is, what, this is where they were at. And this is what they were responding to, this idea of the rapture. And the word rapture means to be caught up. Um, and at Jesus' return, the believers who are alive will be transfigured and receive a heavenly body. They will exit the earth to be present with Jesus. That's what Paul is talking about here and another, other places in Scripture. Now, the only thing that the Bible says about the rapture with any certainty no one knows when it'll be. Everything else is up for discussion and debate, but no one will know when it'll occur. I think lastly, Paul uh, wanted people to know that as believers, we'll be present with Jesus forever. Whatever challenges we face in this life will not last forever. It's not our future these issues, these challenges eventually will come to an end. And as the redeemed, as those who follow Jesus, we will experience the wonder of being in the presence of Jesus and enjoy the blessing of heaven. For us, heaven will be a place of rejoicing and reunion, as Paul addressed earlier, and the place of reward as well. We see that in Revelation. So, those of you who are familiar with the Bible, um, can anybody point out to me or tell me, point me in a direction of where you can find a recipe for baking a cake? Anybody? Find one? No one's offering. 
Is there an actual recipe? Not exactly. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. Everyone's looking at me like, what a stupid question. Why are you asking us this? There are 19 times where the, wor- the word, there's a reference to baking a cake with flour. And there's also a cake of figs. So talk about this, the cluster of figs as being a cake. This is different. Um, there's thir- 19 times we're talking about a cake that's made with flour. Um, in no instance is there a recipe given. Now, here's the other thing, too, is that we know that this, you know, processed sugar, which we use in baking and cooking, didn't reach the Middle East until about the 13th century. Um, and so, how did they make their cakes? Did they use honey? What did they do? What did it look like? How did they do that? You know, and, and we could get bogged down into this forever. It's like, well, I mean, it talked about it. It's in Scripture that we know they ate them, but how did they do it? Then we can just get stuck on that. And actually miss the bigger point of what the story's trying to tell us. Um, you know, that, and the cakes really are incidental to the story. They're not the story. The bigger issue is that people are gathering together and sharing a meal. And that the relationships are the point. People being together, sharing life together is the point, not the recipe for the cake. And I would suggest the same is true for this passage. Even though we don't understand everything about the end times as discussed in the Bible, we shouldn't get hung up on the things that are not central to the bigger story. For us, I think the bigger story of Paul's letter to the people in Thessalonica is, I think, a few things. One is that live with a passion for evangelism. We know that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And for his followers we should have that same priority. And given that we don't know how much time we have left, whether rapture or, what do they say, hit by a bus tomorrow, um, we don't know what tomorrow holds. We should have that same sense of urgency. The lost will be separated from Christ for eternity. We, like Jesus, and for his followers, we should make every effort to reach them so that they can spend eternity with Jesus as well. That's one of the bigger issues that I think Paul is trying to reach. I think another one is this idea of live with expectancy. Jesus talked about this. He says, look, be aware, be expectant. And Paul, I think, is saying this as well. I think, I think all of us, we should be wary of anyone who says they have insight as to when Jesus will turn again. So if you read anything online, you hear someone who says, hey, I've got to figure it out, run away fast. Because, uh, I mean, again, the very last words Jesus said, it's not for you to know. No one knows. I don't know. The angels don't know. Only the Father knows. So anybody who says, con- says otherwise is, is, is contrary to Scripture. And that we know is an automatic... Um, um, that's, that's an automatic strike. You don't do that. His very last words of Jesus were, it's not for you to know. At the same time, your life, you should live your life as if he could come today. So don't, don't get hung up on when, but with a sense of expectancy, we should live as if it could, be, it could be today. It could be tonight. It could be tomorrow. We should live that way. But I think the biggest thing that Paul was trying to convey in his letter is that we need to live with hope. I think hope is the major point of Paul's letter. 
I think that's the primary thing he's trying to communicate with them. His letter in this section we just read, it begins with, we do not want you to be without hope. Be encouraged, be hopeful. And then he ends this section here with, encourage one another with these words. When he says, this is good news. There's good things ahead. Positive things are happening. God's at work. We have hope. Now, the Christ followers in Thessalonica lived in a time that was in some ways very similar to ours. Significant political turmoil. Uh, just an un, There was spirituality, very spiritual people, but very ungodly. It was a spirituality of their own making, much like what we see today. Immorality was rampant, and it was a culture that often resisted them. And sometimes there was actual physical persecution, as we saw with Paul and some of the others. So my message to you today is similar to what Paul's was 2,000 years ago. Yes, this world is hard. Yes, there's pain. There's hurt. There's suffering. There's stress. There's anxiety. There's confusion. All of it. And God never promises that we will be free from that. He does promise us that he'll be with us through it. But more than anything else, that's not our ultimate destination. That our end is actually in heaven with him. And that is for eternity. What we are having experience here now is temporary. And this too shall pass. We have hope because of Jesus Christ. And that's the message Paul's trying to convey. Don't get hung up on all the other things. You have hope. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Paul's letter. And, and I'll be the first to confess, even with all the time I've spent reading and researching and understanding and studying, and Lord, there's so many things I just don't have a clue. Um, and that's okay, uh, because that's not the bigger point. The bigger point, I think, in Paul's letter is that you will, you have a place for us, that you love us. And uh, regardless of when you come, um, or even if you will come during my lifetime, Father, I know that my future is with you. My eternity is with you. And each one of us, each one of us can say that today. And so, Lord, I pray that all of us would find comfort and hope in that reality. That uh, we hope that, that our circumstances change. We hope that things will change. But even if they don't, even if they don't, we can rest knowing that our eternity is secure with you. And may there be consolation there. And may that bring us hope. And may it bring us peace and some level of comfort as well. And so, Lord, we, we continue to put our lives in your hands and trust you for all things. Lord, we give our lives to you. And uh, it's in Jesus' name I pray all these things. Amen.